swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning! In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine, past the diving Eric Carlos in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. Today, we are recording on a Friday. I think we're going to put it out on a Monday. So recording on the 26th, which I have a hangover from the Dodgers-Padres game. I know you were smart enough to not stay up and watch it. I kind of did. And I'll explain how I got through that game. But 16 innings, Jeff, 16 innings. I know you had a couple of those, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, are you feeling for those Dodgers and Padres players right now? Yeah, those, you know, well, let's go back it up a little bit. You know, they changed these rules to have the, the runner start on second base. I was base waiting for this. Completely avoid this situation right here, right? But it's still going to happen. You're still going to blow out your bullpen. I mean, you can't totally get rid of this. So for me to change the rules of the game, the r- rules of baseball, and start adding runners and all this stuff, it's still going to happen. So this proves the point that let's just go back to the regular rules. Let's have regular games. If you play a couple long ones during the course of the year, Hey, suck it up, buttercup. Let's just uh, get on with baseball the way it should be played. <laughs> I was waiting for you to cash this one in uh, because it, it was the longest game uh, of the runner on second era by three innings. Uh, and it definitely, the rule did not help last night. And there were some really funny things. It seems like when those games When it's a weird game, it just doesn't stop being weird, right? It just continues. It's almost like an aura. And that was a weird game, even before the extras. But I will say that was point to Jeff there on your no man on second rule because, or just going back to normal baseball, I guess would be a better way of putting it because, yeah, they went 16 and I fell asleep at 1 a.m. on the couch watching the game. I'm a notorious fall on this fall asleep on the couch guy. And I woke up at four and I saw it on the TV still. Generally, when that happens, it's the rerun, right? Yeah, the rerun. And I'm looking over like, again. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, ah, okay. Nope. It was the 16th. It was still going. And I was like, okay, do I stay up? I, this was a decision I had to make. I went to bed, put on the radio broadcast, and I passed right out. Uh, so I watched a lot of it. But the fact that I could actually almost fully get a night's sleep, got like, four <laughs> hours, like three, four hours and enter my REM cycle, get out of it. And, and the game's still going on. Like I definitely feel for the players there. And there was a few things that happened in that game before we get to the, uh, the game that you experienced or a couple of the games that you experienced where you were just exhausted and it never ended. I sent you a clip and it was Corey Knable who, at this point, I believe it was the 16th inning Dodgers reliever. He's on the mound and there's a little bit of sign stealing history between the Dodgers and the Padres, but there's a runner on second base two run game and it's the bottom of the inning. So the Dodgers are up by two and the run on second doesn't really matter. So Corey can able purposely box to get the runner from second to third umpires don't even see it. So he purposely box more explicitly and then they send the runner from second over to third. The next pitch, Fernando Tatis Jr. hits a bomb and ties the game up anyways. So to me, my takeaway from there was maybe Tatis homers no matter what. I mean, he's one of the best hitters in the game. But he seemed more focused on that than maybe one of the best hitters in the game at the plate, which is what you should be focusing on. What is your you know, 20-year professional baseball veteran just take away from that clip because to me it was it was like who cares why are you purposely balking this guy over if you can't change your signs to where a guy at second base can't yeah. steal them and relay them by the hitter i mean it's a joke i mean you can't it's pretty simple it's pretty simple you think they're stealing signs you change them that's all there is to it and they're not going to pick it up that batter that point of time that exact moment they're not going to be able to relay it to the to the hitter because it's just not going to happen. So I think you hit it right on the head. You're, you're thinking about trying to get this guy over to third base. And I hate that 
oh, that run doesn't matter. Of course it matters because you got to get one closer to winning the game. That that run matters. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a tally in the run column. So that that run definitely matters because you can't score two without scoring that one. And you know when the and by the way, Tatis was one for seven in that game. I know that, that one hit six. came in the sixth. He was zero for six going into that at bat, and he's probably tipping the the cap to the pitcher, worried more about balking the guy to third base than getting him out. So. Yeah, you got to have ultimate concentration to to face Fernando Tatis in any situation, let alone extra innings. So I'm with you on that. Uh, He was directing energy in the wrong space, the wrong time. And if you're worried about him stealing signs, just change him. I agree. And that point with Tatis there, because I'm glad you brought that up. 0 for 6 in a game that is a marathon and hits that home run in the seventh at bat. And this is going to be the word of our, we might as well just change it to, to the gamer podcast. Cause that, that's your favorite word. I've always loved it too, to define players because it's, it's a very intangible thing in a lot of ways, but to me, that's, that's a gamer right there, right? Somebody that's zero for six and goes yard when it matters most, right? Like that, that fits the description. Yeah. I mean, you want your best guys, your gamer guys to come up in clutch situations and you kind of always look to those guys for guidance and leadership and uh, intensity in games like that. And, you know, he lived up to the billing of, Hey, I'm the guy on this team and I'm going to make things happen. And, you know, he did his best to win that game, but it still didn't work out. And the thing with the home run that I watched too, is as he's, he didn't even look excited. Like they all just were like, Oh my gosh, we have another inning because he tied it up. Obviously they're trying to win. But once you're that deep into the game, it's like, holy crap, when is this thing going to end? Padres end up dropping it. And it's been a bad skid. If I'm not mistaken, it's I don't have it in front of me. I think it's 12 of 14 that they've dropped now. And they're still right in the thick of it because they were off to such a good start, you know, through the middle of the season. But now it's it's getting a little scary. Reds are starting to play good baseball, too. And they're slipping. We've talked about that already. Uh, so we don't need to rehash that whole aspect of it. But can you talk about it from a player's perspective in terms of you're already on a skid? And now you have probably your most back-breaking loss of the season. And maybe for some players, their career. I mean, not only is it a 16-inning loss at home, but to your rival, how do you navigate that? Is that something that can really put a team down and put the final nail in the coffin uh, as you continue to slide? Uh, I think it's a little early for that. You know, we're still in August, um, a week to go in August, and there's 30-plus games left in this big league season. So, Yes, they are concerned right now for sure. And I think if they had done what the Mets have done, has totally dropped out of contention, basically, then you're like, all right, they're almost ready to throw in the towel. But they're still right there in the wild card race. I think if they can get it back and get back on a roll, here comes September, that they're going to be fine. They're going to, they still got an ultra talented team. They've got a lot of uh, positive things going for them. And I think, in September, we're going to see them kind of rebound a little bit. They're not going to take over the Dodgers. They're not going to, you know, contend for that division title at all. But I think they've got plenty of time to get the ship righted again and get back on track and at least take the wild card. So, so a loss like that, you think most teams can turn the page, uh, especially. Well, part, it's just been, it's part of that skid they're on right now. It's, you know, 12 or 14. That's a horrible skid. Yes. This is another, you know, uh, another notch in that belt, so to speak of them getting, the noose tightened around their neck saying we got to write this ship and we got to write it fast. And it's a horrible loss. And obviously you don't want to play two, two games in one night as far as innings played are concerned and come away with a, with an L when you're really fighting for your life. But I think they still have time to get the ship back on the right track. And, you know, the, the talent and the personnel that they have, they got time, but like you said, the, the Reds are charging hard. They're going to be right there until the end. I think with the leadership of Votto, and uh, we talked about the other guys uh, that that are hot on that team right now. So it's going to be a battle, but I think they're going to play better baseball in September. As we're recording this, your rookie of the year pick, Jonathan India, for the NL just went yard again. Uh, he's starting to run away with it now. Uh, Trevor Rogers set to make his return and. For, for his sake, too, and for his family's sake, I want to see him finish the season strong. But from just the award standpoint, Jonathan India, man, he's just kicked it into gear. And it's been pretty fun to watch. And especially if the Reds start to, to make that run, it's going to be hard to, to look anywhere else. And, and he's been a good story over there uh, for Cincinnati. And I know Reds fans are really, really excited about him. So do you have a specific memory of a game or a couple games 
that just you pretty much just wanted it to end. Because the one thing I will say is I know you're a competitor. I even hated losing more than anything in the world. But I'd play some of those summer ball games, the second, third game of the day, and it's it's 100 degrees. And we'd go into extra innings or something. And like I'd have no problem just losing at some points there. Obviously, that's not the major <laughs> leagues. And it's a lot different. And I think these guys want to win every single game, but there's almost a point where your body just can't even like go anymore. I know it's baseball. You're not running a marathon, but it's exhausting to lock in for that long. Can you explain about that story or anything, any specific games that have affected you like that, where you just are like almost an autopilot? Yeah, sometimes. And, and like you said, some games are just weird. Like, you know, you might have a lot of scoring going up to the ninth inning and then all of a sudden, you got Cy Young going out there every single inning from then on and nobody can score anything. Nobody gets any hits. And at some point when you get in the teens and upper teens, as far as innings are concerned, I think I've played maybe an 18 inning game, 19 inning game in which everybody does at some point in their career, but it's so few and far between. And those nights are literally double games. You're playing a double header, but it's all in one game. And at some point, especially if it's late in the season, uh, the team that you're on has nothing to play for. Uh, if you're like having a horrible night, you're 0 for 6 at some point or 0 for 7, you're like, oh, please don't let me get to the plate again because I have no chance of getting a hit tonight. Uh, it's more of a mental grind than anything. You know, physically, yes, you're been out there for a long time because you started at 4 o'clock that afternoon with batting practice and taking your fly balls and taking your ground balls and doing all your work. And then you get into the game and you're playing for – upwards of six hours or seven hours for some of these games at the end, it's like, I'm going to try as much as I can, as far as when plays come to me and when I get up to the plate, but you just want it to end. It's like uncle <laughs> at some point yeah. it was like, uncle, uh, please somebody score. Hopefully it's our team and we win, but if not, just somebody end this thing and put us out of our misery. Well, it's almost like one of those situations too, where if you have a big stretch ahead, it's almost better off that you lose that game earlier and preserve the bullpen, preserve the energy and go into the next one. But it's also a catch 22 because if I'm 15 innings in, I'm also like, gosh, I've already invested so much of my time and energy into this. I need to win this. And that's where I feel the backbreaking component of it. If you really lose one, but it's only one out of 162. And and that's the hard thing that I always find fascinating with, with ball players because anytime a ball player steps on the field, I think to make it to where most of these guys are at, of course, there's exceptions to anything, but to make it to where you guys got to, you got to have a different level of, of competitiveness to you and an edge to you. And you probably don't want to lose anything. And at the same time, you don't want to put a ton of stock into a game that's less than 1% of the season, right? How, how do you find that balance of, I'd never want to lose. I have to have that intensity to keep yourself up and going day in and day out as we talk about the dog days and the grind, but also not letting a game or a loss define your team season or define your week or even, you know, just the series. Well, a lot of it's depending on the standings too. You know, um, with that game last night, that had a lot more riding on it than uh, the 17 or 18 inning game that I played when I was with the Orioles and we were 18 games out of first place and had no shot of making the playoffs. You know, that's kind of a, a night where, yeah, we're going to obviously do our best to win. And you're an athlete and you're a competitor. You're going out there to, to, to do just that. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, all right, you know, you've got your eight at bats, your seven at bats in one night. It, you just want it to be over. Where last night, there's a lot right on the line. For one, Padres are playing their arch rivals in the Los Angeles Dodgers in that division. Two, they're fighting for their lives, trying to turn around a streak that's been absolutely horrible for that team and knock them not out of the playoff contention, but now they're in a dogfight for just a wild card where two weeks ago they had it locked up. It was going to be a three guys or three teams from the same division going into the playoffs with the Giants, Dodgers, and Padres. Uh, now you've brought the Cincinnati Reds into in contention to this thing, and they were playing really good baseball. So this game meant a lot more uh, not only to the players, uh, to the organization, to this race. So that kind of had a different feel than the games that I played and that meant absolutely nothing going into the later stages of the season. Last thing I want to ask you on the Padres, because I know this is something that you can relate to a little bit as well, is being traded at the deadline or midseason or whatever it may be, Adam Frazier, he was traded over from the Pirates, was having an all-star season, you know, first-time all-star with, with Pittsburgh over there, gets dealt over to San Diego. Since the trade, an OPS under 550, and he's been even struggling, booted a ball in foul territory yesterday. He just seems a little bit out of sorts. 
Can you relate to maybe the difficulty of joining a new team, especially one that is so talented with big stars and a lot of hype around it? Is that something that you think is affecting Adam Frazier in his game right now? Obviously, you can't speak for him, but uh, from a general player standpoint, do you think he's just slumping or it's a little bit of the change of environment that might be throwing him out of whack? It could be uh, many different factors. You know, we've talked about the stuff outside the lines where the great players are able to block out that stuff outside the lines. And that what makes them great. They kind of uh, discount any distraction that's going on outside of that nine innings that they play in between those lines. So, you know, you got Frazier who is in Pittsburgh playing for nothing, absolutely nothing. And there's no pressure on them to do well, to do anything. So he's got going up the ballpark every night. There's no expectation of them to win, uh, so to speak. And yes, he's a big leaguer. He's going out there competing every day and having a great season. Well, now you go into a situation where it's a big market. It's on the West Coast. You got rivalries going on with the Dodgers and, and the Padres at the time were right there, you know, hopefully vying for really not the, the division because, well, they weren't that far out when he first got there. So um, now you got all these other external forces that are they're coming down on you that can definitely have an effect you have no idea what's going on with his family his family did they come with him you know you got to move out of a place that you've been kind of uh, rooted into and now you got to uproot everything you're all the way across the other coast you know uh, 2500 miles away that weighs on you does he have children you know are they in school do they take him out of school are they in summer school whatever all these factors come together in a player's life and when it comes down to it we're not robots you know we put on a uniform and we play a game for a living but at the same time we're human beings too and there are a lot of other factors that will factor into our performance especially when you change environments from pittsburgh to a pennant race on the west coast it's a totally different animal and you know i wouldn't be surprised at all if his mind uh has been struggling with the fact that there are a lot of external forces going on with his game right now yeah and i think you bring up a really good point because and this is this is why i love this show is because you can't get that perspective elsewhere, right? People don't realize how you guys are humans, right? Like you guys really, there's so many little things in the background and even on a baseball side too, an 0 for 12 stretch or an 0 for 20 stretch, even with the pirates, you're not pressing as much. You're like, all right, I'll get out of it. It's fine. You go 0 for 0 for whatever with the Padres you're pressing. You're like, I need to help this team win right now. But also, I don't think people realize, yeah, you're going across the entire country here. And who knows what the family situation is. And with you, when you were a free agent, free agent trades, whatever, how much did that affect you in terms of making your decisions and and doing all of those things? I don't know for I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but you never did you ever hit the open free agency market or did you always send or end up signing uh, extensions? Uh, I was a free agent. Um once in Baltimore and signed a three-year deal with them. Um, and then at the very end of that deal is when I got traded. Uh, I got traded, basically, I went to four different teams in, in a <laughs> two-year span. So I, I signed with Baltimore. Um, that was a free agent deal as well, just for a year though. And it had a clause where if I got a number of uh, plate appearances, the second year automatically kicked in. So I had a luxury of knowing that when that second year kicked in, I was done. I was at a point in my career where, you know, I was more of a part-time player and the kids were getting to an age where I really wanted to be around to watch them, you know, uh, run track and play baseball and graduate high school and all these uh, family events coming up. So I knew that I had the luxury of saying, all right, this is going to be my final year when that, when that option kicked in. So at the end of my year in Baltimore, I was traded the Phillies and you know, that I think I'd already, had my extension kick in before I even was traded to the Phillies. So that was a, a relief in my mind, but then the Phillies in the offseason traded me to Cincinnati. And at the end of the year, Cincinnati traded me to New York. Um, and all those things were, were finite for me. I knew that I wasn't young in my career where I had to go all the way across country. And I knew that, you know, I might have 10 more years in the big leagues and, but I don't know where I'm going to be. And I don't know if, you know, the West coast, far from my family, you know, the, the kids' school situations and things like that. So uh, it wasn't that, you know, uh, life-changing for me because it was at the very, very end where, and I always stay in the Northeast, you know, from Baltimore to Philly, Philly to New York, New York to Cincinnati. So I was all, always in that little tiny uh, kind of bubble up there. Um, and we knew it was going to be my last year. So 
you know, Cindy was great with the, obviously the moves and, and taking care of the kids. And because she knew that it was, this is it. We know that this is, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And um, some guys don't have that luxury. Did that make your end of your playing days a lot easier to, to handle? Cause I know it's, it's an emotional time to hang up your cleats, no matter when, whether you're 35, 40 or how many years you played, it, it's a really difficult thing to do. As you always see, you guys get really emotional when they retire. And I mean, it's it, even for me finishing high school, I, I cried my last game, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's a big part of your life in a chapter that you, you turn over. And obviously knowing that you're going back to your family and your kids and, and your wife, and it makes it a lot easier, but was that kind of what made it uh, a little bit more easy to accept in terms of hanging up the cleats and, and how hard was that in terms of just moving on uh, from playing every day to back to normal life? Yeah. I mean, it's a huge part of my life. It was 20 years at that point it was almost half my life. I had been in professional baseball, but at the same time, I was an athlete that got to experience basically everything I could possibly experience in the major leagues. And yeah. To be able to make the decision yourself to not play anymore is it's rare for one. Um, I think a lot of guys, when they get released, uh, they want to keep on trying. They want to get back to the big leagues. They want to keep playing baseball. I was able to have uh, an amazing career that spanned 17 years. And at the end, I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd maxed out. Could I have played more? Possibly. I, I possibly could have played more if somebody might have signed me for, you know, a, a small deal. But I got to say I've had enough. And I knew that I was pretty much at my physical limit as far as being able to say, am I a competitive major leaguer anymore? Can I play every single day? Those questions were answered for me. You know, I wasn't an everyday player anymore. I was off the bench, which I hated being off the bench because I needed to be in that kind of game feel all the time to keep loose and to keep focused and to know that, all right, I get to call the shot and take off that uniform and hang it up uh, was really a blessing. And, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. And I, that's another thing, you know, I don't really think about too often. I'm, I'm sure most fans don't is that going out on your own terms. So many times it's injury related or, or just you're not able to play at the level that you once could. And you're trying to get back. And it's, it's a lot harder because you don't know if you're going to get back or not. And it, you don't really have that same process of like, okay, this is it. And that's something that, like you said, is, is a really awesome privilege to be able to have and something that you have to earn as well. And, uh, that's what happens when you play for 17 years in the big leagues and just consistently put up numbers. So the last thing I want to talk about here before we get to your top five pitchers you don't want to face, which I'm excited about. Uh, we were talking about going out on your own terms and going out on your own time. Yadier Molina gets one more year. I thought this would be his last year. He's playing at a pretty decent level right now, and he's doing well behind the dish still, which is just unbelievable. He's throwing out 43 percent of runners, Jeff, 43 percent. That's I don't even real. know how he still squats back there. It, it, it's amazing. And he's yeah. swinging it fine too. Like he's swinging it fine too, especially given how meager the catching position is. He's probably an average offensive catcher. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the value that he brings, right? You talk about clubhouse. Does it get better than Yachty handling your pitching staff? It doesn't get better than that. He gets one more year. He's going to get his farewell tour. And honestly, he deserves it playing his whole career in St. Louis. Uh, Hall of Famer. But for some reason, for some reason, people are pushing back on that one a little bit. I've seen people pushing back on Yadier Molina as a Hall of Famer. What do you think about that? Are you kidding me? For one, I mean, Yadier <laughs> Molina uh, has been uh, to be able to stay with one organization and the catcher is like basically the, the whole brains behind the operation as far as that pitching staff is concerned. So when you look at all the success that the St. Louis Cardinals have had in the last 19 years, uh, a great portion of that is because of Yadi Molina and being able to handle. I would love to have a, a quote from Adam Wainwright on what he thinks the benefit of having Yadi Molina behind the plate and what he thinks of him uh, questioning his Hall of Fame statistics. I guarantee you Adam Wainwright will praise him up and down uh, like no tomorrow because a great catcher 
can command a, a pitching staff and change the way they pitch to hitters. It gives him a lot of confidence knowing that he knows every single batter in the National League. He's seen them so many different times. He knows the pitchers so well. He picks up on things so quickly that he knows what pitches to, to throw in certain situations. And I guarantee you that he's gone out there a number of times when a, a young pitcher shook it, shaking him off on a pitch and says, he'll go out there and say, listen, bro, we're going to throw this pitch right now because I know what I'm doing. And uh, for me, Yadi Molina, especially at that position, you know, you throw out offense, um, not throw it out, but offense you get from a catching position is kind of a bonus. And for him to be back there for 19 years and done as much as he has offensively, behind the plate. I think he's a hall of famer. No doubt. I'm with you. And just on this merit alone, he has caught 17,450 and two thirds innings behind the dish. And that's just in the regular season. You also got the postseason where he's played 101 games. So however many innings that is too, I mean, that alone, I, he, he could hit 100 for his career. If you're catching 17,000 innings, I, you go to the Hall of Fame. I don't think anybody's ever going to catch that many innings again. And nope. it, it's amazing. And I, I just like that he is still productive. You know, it's really difficult sometimes to talk about the end where these guys somewhat limp to the finish line. And, it, and it's a little difficult to watch. It's not really the case with him this year. I mean, he, he was even an all-star because he started so hot. Obviously it was a little bit of the St. Louis effect and the Yachty effect, but I mean, he, the numbers are fine. He's hitting 259. He's, he's hit eight home runs. He's driven in 51 and that's a solid year. And honestly, there's a lot of teams that would probably take Yachty as their starter right now, all of the intangibles aside. So it's going to be fun to watch him get that final year. Miguel Cabrera says he's got two more years in him, which makes sense because that's the contract. But I hope for his sake and for my sake, because I will be distressed if he is one of those guys that really limps to the finish line, uh, that he finishes strong as well. And we'll we'll see how that goes. But Yachty, one more year, uh, Hall of Famer. And if you don't think so, both I and Jeff think you're crazy. (laughs) So let's move on to the top five pitchers now that you don't want to face. And I'm excited for this one because it's not just going to be the five. I'm sure some of them will be some of the best ever, but it's going to be guys that just you didn't see the ball well off of. Right. And and full disclosure, I have no idea who you're going to mention here. I have one that I think I know. And then after that, we're going to get to the Jersey. So let's go with these five arms real quick. Um, They're definitely not who you think they're going to be. Um, There are some pitchers that I face that, like you said, you see well, you see well. And for whatever reason, uh, I hit those guys, some of the best, like I wouldn't put Roger Clemens in the, I would say the first at bat that I ever faced Roger Clemens was probably one of the scariest at bats I've ever had. But over the length of my career and the number of times I faced him, I wouldn't put him in like the, I hate facing that guy category. Um, the worst batting average against that I have uh, against me, which was the most comfortable a bat you'll ever have, is Tim Wakefield. Tim Wakefield, if you look at my stats, uh, I think I was four for 40 or four for 36 or something crazy against Tim Wakefield, which is not it's not a stressful at bat. The ball's going 60, 65 miles an hour. And there were other knuckleballers that I faced over my career that I had success against. There was just something about him and the way he threw the ball that I couldn't hit. It was crazy. And the four, I guarantee you the four that I have that uh, I have against him are not that hit hard hit balls. I think two of them were jam shot, maybe broken bats. Uh, and those were two of the four hits that I, that I'd gotten off of him. So that's number one. Number two was another guy that, uh, you know, I was in the national league East. So they had the most vaunted pitching staff maybe of all time. Uh, when you got, three hall of famers uh, on one pitching staff with Smoltz, Glavin and Maddox. And, you know, Smoltz power right-hander, ridiculous breaking ball. Um, Greg Maddox, one of the masters of uh, control and moving the ball around and, and literally had six or seven different pitches that he could throw for strikes at any time. He could make his fastball, do whatever he wanted. But the guy that I had the toughest time with on that staff was Tom Glavin. And it was probably the most comfortable at bat by far. You know, he threw 90 miles an hour. He'd hump it up to 91 if you want to come inside a little bit. 
But you know, he had that ability to hit 87 away with that that tailing fastball. Then he'd throw an 85 mile an hour fastball away, and then he'd kind of change it up a little bit more and throw an 83. And he just like almost frustrated you into swinging at a pitch that he wanted you to swing at. And he was just one of my most frustrating guys to face because I just couldn't figure him out. And he, he was um, a guy that just aged well too, because he was never a high velo guy, right? Just always a pitchability, locate, difficult, mix it up. And he was a pitcher's pitcher, you know, yeah. he was a pitcher's pitcher. He just knew how to pitch uh, as well as anybody in the game. And uh, he frustrated the hell out of me. And before um, you get to number three, sorry, I, I just want to know, obviously you didn't have it figured out totally. So I, it's hard to ask, but what is the approach against a knuckleballer like Wakefield? Cause you said you had success against other knuckleballers. So like that approach worked there, but just in general, I guess, how do you approach a knuckleballer? Is it just see ball hit ball? Pretty I much. I mean, it's, it's obviously very slow. So you got to wait longer for that pitch because you know what it's, you know, what's coming. You absolutely know what's coming, but you don't know when the big movement is going to come on that ball. So it's only 65 miles an hour. You try and wait to the last second before you commit on where you think it's going to be. And I guessed wrong, I guess every time because uh, he got me out all the damn time. Um, but some other knuckleballers, I guess when I waited until the last second to, or last millisecond to take my swing, that's where the ball was. But with him, I couldn't do it. It was, it was shocking. Would he ever just mix in like a fastball and blow? Yeah, so he's one of the few guys that actually, you know, a three and one count or a three and two count or two strikes, he might throw a 71 mile an hour fastball, which after throwing low 60s on a knuckleball looks like a hundred. Um, and he was yeah, a shortstop, you know, he was a shortstop coming up. So he had good hands uh, fielding his position, but just a nice short 75 mile an hour fastball that he could throw in there or lay in there that uh, looked like blazing speed compared to the rest of his stuff. But he would throw in every once in a while, he would throw one in there. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the weak hits being the only hits you had 133 average off of Wakefield, 167 slugging off of Wakefield. So uh, I think I hit one double. That's the only thing I did off him. <laughs> he did. It's hit- bro- it probably a broken bat in the gap or something like that. You hit one double. Uh, so who's number three here? Uh, number three is another guy that uh, unassuming um, reliever, actually, that was with uh, Toronto for quite a while. Um, Paul Quantrill was just a guy that uh, I, it, it, when you go up there, he's got 89 on our fastball that had decent movement and he had a slider. That was pretty much the only pitches he ever threw to me was fastball slider. And there was something the way he delivered the ball. I just could not pick it up. There was not a fearful of bet. I knew it was coming pretty much fastball slider. wasn't overpowering. Wasn't a 98 mile an hour guy. And he blew me up all the time. It was just, I could not, I could not pick up his ball. So Paul Quantrill was on there and he was on the same staff when Billy Koch came to the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. He was the reliever that was throwing 101 miles an hour. Uh, he might've had the best fastball in the league by far at that point. And I was six from my first six off of, Billy Koch. Wow. I, was, I raked Billy Koch. I mean, I, there was something about him. I could see his fastball, but even though it was 101 miles an hour, something about his delivery, I could see it well. And I just had no problems with him at all. But Quantrill 89, he tore me up. It's pretty wild how that works, right? And yeah. interesting thing on Quantrill now is that his son is pitching with Cleveland and doing really well. He's been on fire and uh, starting to figure it out. He was a top prospect, struggled with the Padres, got traded over. And uh, his son's not a flamethrower by any means either and is doing really well, spotting up, mixing it up, and having success. So that's pretty cool as well. Take it after that. Uh, and it's crazy maybe, to see these kids of people that I faced, you know. Right, uh, right. Montreal and you got Tatis. I played against his dad and, you know, Vlad Jr. and Bichette and, and Biggio and um, – um, just all these guys that, you know, Delano DeShields, I played with him in Baltimore. Yeah. And, you know, you just, uh, Tom Gordon, I played with him in Kansas City. And you see all these guys that come up and their kids, it's just like mind boggling to feel how old you are at that point. <laughs> it's funny. Anytime I see a, a Griffin tweet, you know, Griffin Conine hits his league leading 35th homer or whatever. I always see some replies. Don't tell me that's Jeff's son. Am I that old? It just yeah, always right? replies like that, which is really funny. Uh, but it would be a full circle thing there. Uh, it's probably going to happen. Griffin facing uh, Cal Quantrill, which is just a, a crazy concept to, to think about. Uh, so number four here, who we got? 
Um, you know, I'm probably going to disappoint with all these names too, because uh, they're not the the typical ones you would think of. Um, like I said, Clemens was great. Pedro Martinez was great. I would put them, I would put him up there um, probably just out of the top five, but Mark Wollers was a closer for uh, the Atlanta Braves for a long time. And he was an upper nineties type guy. And it wasn't his fastball that really messed me up as it was his split finger, but it was almost like a fork ball. He threw a fork ball that he had these massive hands and he would jam that ball back in the middle of his fingers and throw the hell out of it. It was like a 90, 91 mile an hour fork ball that, that moved almost like a knuckleball. It just had this downward action that he had such good arm action on it that, uh, and he had good breaking stuff on top of that. I mean, he was a, he was an elite closer for the Braves for a while, but that was one of the guys that I really, if my turn at bat did not come up in the ninth inning, I was okay with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. You, you say you, you, you wanted to, or you feel like you're disappointing with some of the names. I'd honestly prefer it because if you're just sitting here and you say Roger Clemens, Pedro Martinez, okay, that's the same answer for everybody. Right. So it's, it's cool to hear some of the different names. I don't even know some of these names to be honest. And like, that's why I'm, I'm scrolling right now, looking at some of the numbers, trying to see uh, how you hit against some of these players and, and a little bit of the background on some of them, because they're somewhat in between or uh, guys that maybe didn't have the most prolific careers, but it's just funny how certain players uh, just line up di- as in are difficult for uh, certain hitters. Who's number five. Um, let's see. Number five. I mean, Number five, I actually, I hated facing, but I had decent success against, which might seem weird. Um, and I didn't even know I had success with him until I was interviewed after he retired. But Mariano Rivera, for me, yeah. had the single greatest fastball in the history of pitching. And I remember going up against him at Yankee Stadium for the very first time. I was with the Orioles and I'm like, you know, scouting report, what's he got? And they'd be like, he throws a fastball. And back then he actually had a curveball as well. Um, that threw, he threw occasionally, which he's doing a favor, uh, if you threw the curveball, but <laughs> he said, he's got a fastball and I'm like, all right. And he goes, it's, it's a cutter. You know, he, he cuts it, he cut fastball pretty much every time. And, um, that's his pitch. He'll throw that 90% of the time. I'm like, all right. So I get up there and I, you know, get digging the box at Yankee stadium. And I look at the first delivery. I was taken all the way just cause I want to see what it looked like. And he had the smoothest most nonchalant delivery looked like he wasn't even putting any effort into it whatsoever. And the ball went by me at 95 miles an hour. And I stepped back and I'm like, that's not a cutter. He was basically throwing a 95 an hour slider. I mean, that pitch broke a foot or more. I mean, I was like, wait, wait a second. That is insane. I had no idea that the ball would break that much. I thought, you know, cutter is just a, usually just a little tiny uh, break on a pitch to get it off the barrel a little bit and maybe, you know, get it off the end for a right-hander. No, this thing was an absolute slider, wipeout slider at 95. And that was his normal delivery, normal fastball. And like I said, I had decent success against him and uh, I was interviewed, um, when I was working for the Marlins and they said, Hey, Mariano Rivera just, just retired. And I want to interview you on one of the few guys that had some success against him. I, I did. <laughs> and I can't remember what he said. I was six for 14 or six for 15 off him or something like that. And I was shocked to know that I had that kind of success off him because he was just, uh, it was a baffling pitch to face five for 14 with a Homer it's three fifty seven batting average, but yeah, that that sounds miserable. Absolutely miserable. I, I would never want to to face something like that, especially as a lefty. Though, who do you think it's harder on a righty or a lefty? Oh my god, I could never understand why managers kept throwing pinch hit lefties against him. It was the biggest uh, firewood sale in the in the history of baseball because he would snap so many bats. One of the funniest things ever is he came in uh, to face us in Baltimore is right toward the end of the season. He's tuning up for the playoffs. You know, they are, they'd already made it. And Joe Girardi was catching him and our manager threw up Derek may left-handed hitter. That was with the Cubs for a while, came over to Baltimore and he wanted, he, uh, he pinch hit Derek may against Mariano Rivera. And I just, I couldn't understand that. I mean, that is like death for left-handed hitters to face a slider coming in at you 95 miles an hour. So anyway, 
So anyway, okay. Derek May gets into this at bat and eventually takes a huge hack at, of course, a cutter in on his hands and swings. And he stands there and he's looking for the ball. Like he knew he made contact, but he did not know where it went. And he told us this later, but Joe Girardi is behind the plate because they played together with the Cubs or buds, you know, and Joe looks at him and goes, run D run. He told him to run. And it was a squibber down the third baseline. Scott Brocious, I think was the third baseman at the time. And it had such English on it that it got by him into left field. And he only got a single on it. If he would have known right away that it was on the ground, he would have made an easy double, but he's looked standing there at the home plate, looking around to see where the ball went. Cause he had no idea that it was airborne on the ground, foul ball, anything. And Joe has said, D run, you got to run, man. Cause he saw it going down the third baseline. That, that reminds me of like the, uh, the little league kid, like the ninth batter that fouls it straight back and runs every time. And you're like, he's got to come back and pick his bat up. Like that, that had to never have happened to you, right? Like there was in the big leagues where you foul a ball off or hit one and you don't know where it went. Like that's a testament to just how uncomfortable Mariano Rivera made, made hitters. Uh, The interesting thing, I have one more name for you just out of curiosity and also because of uh, you're looking at the numbers right now. Yeah. I'm totally looking at the numbers right now. Um, I'll, t- I'll go to the positive side soon, but I do have one more name for you. Mark Leiter. Any, Mark Leiter. any yeah. memories of Mark Leiter? In, yeah, in a lot of strikeouts I remember off Mark Leiter. Two for 23 yep. against Mark Leiter. But to flip to the positive side, uh, there's, there's a few guys that you absolutely crushed. Jamie Moyer, someone that you hit really well. OPS yeah. over 1,000 against Jamie Moyer. Uh what was it there? I mean, he's another soft throwing guy cutter that would get in on your hands. Um, I don't know if that was more later in his career. Cause that's all I really saw. Was he different earlier on? Um, I mean, not really. He was, he pretty much had the same style his whole career, but uh, that was just a guy that, you know, I had confidence in and, and confidence facing, um, I didn't think he could ever throw the ball by me. So that was something that you could automatically take out of your mind is that even if he came inside, he was throwing 85 miles an hour is pretty much his top fastball, maybe 86. Um, but he's a crafty. I mean, he, he gave other people a lot of fits, but for me, I saw him well. And, uh, I, I almost thought along with him, you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I kind of anticipated, uh, zones that he would throw it in and, um, yeah, it's one of those guys that you, you like facing. So on the positive side, this is nuts. 364 off of Dwight Gooden. Yeah, that was toward the end. You know, that was toward the end. It wasn't the Dwight Gooden, but, uh, I liked facing Dwight Gooden. Yeah, that was cause you know what? He, he would challenge you. He would challenge you He'd go after you with a fastball that wasn't the, the high crazy fastball that he used to have when he first came up with the Mets, but, um, I like facing Dwight. Yeah. I got a couple more names for you because there's a couple absurd ones. Marvin Freeman, who I'm unfamiliar with, you hit 667 against him in 19 plate appearances. <laughs> I believe he was with the Rockies. Um, ah, poor guy. Had to pitch to you yeah. in fours. That yep. makes sense. Let me let me corroborate that. Yep. That is exactly where he played. So that makes more sense. That's that's unfortunate. Put that's on unfortunate. that purple uniform, especially at home, man. I'm going to wear you out. <laughs> yeah, it, you don't want to pitch to to Jeff Conine at Coors Field. Uh, it, there's literally a 50% chance you're getting a hit there, uh, which is <laughs> which is just absurd. Uh, but I love going through these numbers because it's so fascinating to me just how certain players uh, can really just struggle or or vice versa against certain pitchers. What I've noticed, and this might be just me totally having some confirmation bias as I look at Ted Lilly now and some other players that you had success against. Did you feel like you saw the ball really well off of, of, off of those soft throwing lefty types? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, a good success other than Glavin, who I would yeah, consider other a than fairly soft throwing, le- soft throwing lefty. I mean, he threw 90 um, and it was hard enough and he had good enough deception that when he threw in, you had to respect that. So I think that kind of opened up the plate on the outside, especially for him. Um, but the other guys, yeah, I just saw them very well. And that just gives you confidence when you know someone you're seeing well is going to be on the mound that day. He just kind of keeps on going. Yeah, I always wonder that too. How much of that is is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where you know you hit that pitcher well 
So you go into it and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm getting hits today. Or, oh yeah. I, with, same with cores, right? Obviously the ball flew off your back there, but how much of it was, I'm in cores, I'm home, baby. Like I'm about to, I'm about to rake. Yeah. I didn't really care who, who took them out of course. Uh, they could have a Cy Young award winner. I just felt a sense of confidence that doesn't matter who's going up there today. I'm going to get a hit. And, you know, that has a lot uh, to do on your success, especially at a ballpark like that against, which could be seemingly re- really good pitchers, but um, you know, it's, but it goes the other way when you're at your home ballpark or some other ballpark where you face a pitcher that you just are so comfortable with uh, you see everything so well, you've had success in the past and, you know, it goes both ways. So even if you're slumping, they say that the computer will get you. So if I was slumping and I faced one of those pitchers you just mentioned, I'm in the lineup for sure. And vice versa, if I'm going along and I'm uh, streaking real well and I'm facing Tim Wakefield at the end, our manager's like, yeah, you know what? Take a day off today. <laughs> yeah. The computer got me on that one for sure. A number of times. And that makes sense. That makes sense. So that was really fun. And let's wrap up with obviously my favorite part of this whole thing is the Jersey. Who do we have? What team? It looks like Rockies, Mets. Oh, you're bringing up the Mets. It's not a good time to, to bring up the Mets, but it's okay. So who do we have here? Mets. I, it doesn't help me arrow-wise because they all look the same always. <sighs> Can you give me a span of a decade? Um, late 2000s. David Wright. Mid, mid to late. No. I loved David Wright, by the way, talking about somebody that didn't get to go out on their own terms. I think he would have been a hall of famer thoughts on that. He, uh, you know, I got to play with him in 2007 and he was still battling, battling injuries then. But uh, the guy talking about a gamer and someone that would sit in front of his locker with the New York media and take all the questions and answer them with dignity. And, you know, what you want your team leader to be like, He, he was that guy. Yeah, I, that was one of my favorite players growing up, even though as a Marlins fan, just watching him hit, I always tried to emulate that almost that little bat waggle of the getting slotted. And uh, I just loved the way he could drive the ball to all fields, 30, 30 guy, really fun, but that's not who you're wearing. So, uh, end of, would Carlos Delgado have been there? This is a trick. Yeah. I played with him too there. Um, he was another this guy. This is kind of a trick. Trick question, even though, but you know, we're going over the pitchers today. Okay. Pitcher, pitcher, pitcher. pitcher. Okay. Give me Pedro Martinez. Not a bad guess. He was there. He was there with the Mets at the end. Pedro was Uh, really. Yeah, he was. I didn't know that. He was. I I didn't know if he overlapped with you at the end there. Um, Johan Santana. Oh, good one. Also, Um, as a matter of fact, we're talking about uh, change-ups today. Oh, uh, when I was at FIU talking with Merv Melendez, uh, the head coach there, and he brought up Johan Santana and his changeup. I was like, it almost He's gave gonna- me hives thinking about his changeup. He had one of the best changeups I've ever seen. Oh, my gosh. When, when he was at his peak, just purely dominant. And ironically, rule five draft pick by the Marlins, who then immediately traded him uh, to the twins and swapped rule five draft picks. Cause that's what they always do. And unfortunately there went the uh, Cy Young winner, Johan mm-hmm. Santana, uh, and maybe he would have been your teammate instead. If, if they didn't do that, um, you're slowly turning. I'm running out of guesses. I'm going to go. If it's a pitcher, don't, don't go. Give me one more. Give me one more. Give me one more. Um, Glavin, I guess. There we go. There we go. Finally. There we go. That's the most guesses I've even been able to muster up for a team. So, okay, Tom Glavin. Well, we already got that one out. He was, what, at the tail tail end there, right? Very tail end, yeah. But he was still effective. And it came down to the last day. So we had squandered a seven-game lead with 17 games to play. It came down to the Sunday. We played the Marlins. Uh, Dontrell Willis was was pitching for the Marlins that day. And Tom Glavin was faced, we were, was our pitcher uh, for the Mets. We had to win that game, and the Phillies had to lose that game in order for a one-game playoff on the next day. And unfortunately, the Marlins scored seven runs in the first inning. Oh, wow. Off of Tom Glavin. And that basically <laughs> was the end of our season. Wow. And that's, I mean, that's somebody, you talk about a gamer. He was 41 at the time, but 
you're giving Tom Glavin the ball in, in a situation like that, but just didn't have it that day. When you got that signed, it would have been either right before or right after he got the 300th win, right? Well, is that I was this is when I got it signed, was when I was with the team. So, um, I don't know when he what, is that 2007? Yeah, that's 2007. So he would have got the 300th win that year, uh, but it must have been just before you got there. Yeah, I think so. Because I feel like that's something you would have remembered for sure with your recall of the 300th win. That's something that'll never be done again, right? No yeah. one's ever doing that ever again. Nope. 300, like we said before, with the Hall of Fame inductions and uh, the, the bar has to be let, lowered. You know, it used to be guaranteed 300 wins, you're in the Hall of Fame, 3,000 hits, you're in the Hall of Fame. Those numbers are going to have to come back down, come down because you just don't see the longevity uh, of the career that would it take. I mean, talking about 15 wins a year for 20 years, that's unbelievable when you think about it in those terms. Yeah, it, it just sounds impossible. And he won 20 games four times, five times, excuse me, just absurd. And the last thing I wanted to wrap up on here with Glavin is just outside of what you already talked about with his arsenal, what do you think was just the one thing, the defining characteristic in terms of how he pitched that allowed him to be so consistent and just continuously churn out 15, 20 game win or 21 seasons year after year? He was just a master of his emotions. It was a master of his craft. He had confidence in all of his pitches. He knew that and you knew it too as a hitter going up there. This guy knows exactly how he wants to get me out. He's got a blueprint of how he wants to get me out, and he follows that blueprint to a T. Yeah, sometimes it didn't work out, but 300 wins for most part, it did a lot, a lot, a lot of times. So um, I just was always in awe of his composure on the mound. He never – he was unflappable. It was the steadiest demeanor you've ever seen on a guy on the mound. Like he, when he stood up there, he just – you never knew if he was like nervous inside or, or excited or uh, down or it didn't matter. Even after giving up seven runs, Tom Glavin looked the same every single time out there. And uh, he's a great poker face, uh, but a great competitor as well. What's funny is that brave staff. I think you could say the same thing with Maddox. You could say the same thing with Smoltz. I mean, yeah. that staff, it, it was just stoic, same thing and just dominant, dominant players. So I actually want to ask you about that staff next episode, because to me, that's got to be up there. And I want to get your top pitching staffs ever, whether it was when you were playing before, after now, um, that's what we're going to tease for the next episode. And uh, we'll wrap up as well a little bit more on the races here because it's getting close. I can't wait to pull out all of the playoff stories as we get closer to the playoffs, but looking forward to the rotation rankings. We'll have a lot more topics going on. You're ramping up the college season. That'll be something consistently going to, uh, but any final thoughts as we went through all of the guys that carved you up, but also some guys that you teed off on too. I had, I had to throw in some positives. Yeah, I appreciate that. Didn't you didn't want me to go home or uh, go downstairs sad today. Cause I would yeah. be living all the outs that I made up here in my room, but uh, you pumped me up a little bit with a few, a few gimmies at the end. I appreciate that arm. Always, always. So that'll do it for today's episode of Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, and we'll talk to you next week.